God, I pray that we would realize how great you are, that you would give us a glimpse of that this morning. I uh, thank you that you are a defender, you are a healer, you are a helper, you are a savior. I pray that those words would sink in, uh, that we would not live the same life as the rest of the world, God, but that our lives would shine, uh, that we would point people to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> And again, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Church. It is a, a joy to see each and every one of you here this morning. A uh, couple of announcements. This uh, coming up week, a couple of big events going on. One is on a week from yesterday. Saturday, Alyssa will be graduating. I think we have, yeah, see, and that's sweet. Uh, Six o'clock at Marble Springs. You are all invited to join them and... Sterling, I'm sorry, I don't have a picture of you. Sorry, Sterling. But a week from Tuesday, Sterling will be graduating as well, and that'll be at Andrews, uh, the stadium, correct? At Andrews. So uh, we'd love to, to see all of you there as we uh, celebrate the end of one phase of life and the beginning of another as they uh, go from high school to college. Alyssa's going to go to Wingate, correct? Which is south and east of Charlotte. And showing you're going to NC State, is that correct? And I'm still, I don't know where NC State is. Where is that? Raleigh. Raleigh. There we go. Still learning my North Carolina geography for all these years. So we'd love to have you there. Uh, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Colossians called Don't Think Outside the Box. Uh, and we would love for you to follow along. There is an outline in the bulletin. If you don't have one, raise your hand and there'll also be an outline up on the screen. As well, this morning we're in chapter 2. Uh, I'd emailed Brandon early in the week and said, we're going to do verses 16 through like 25. And then as I begin spending more time this week, and I thought, there is no way we're doing that many verses. So we're actually going to get through a whopping two verses this morning. You know, it took us forever, I thought, to get through chapter 1. And then we kind of sped up and did most of chapter 2 in a couple of weeks. And I thought, you know, we're moving right along. And... We're going to slow down again. Um, so chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 16, is where we'll be in just a little bit. And we'll look at just two verses uh, this morning as we, again, talk and think about what it looks like for us to not think outside the box. Um, how many of you are familiar with the movie uh, National Treasure? We've seen that. Um, Early on in that movie, the character Abigail asks Ben Gates, um, she says, so um, you're treasure hunters, aren't you? And he says, no, more like treasure protectors. Come to find out, they actually did find a, a great treasure, huge treasure, um, made them wealthy. Um, but that treasure, even though it had been kind of hidden away and preserved all these years, is still temporal. It doesn't last. And we all through life, we, we collect treasures, we build up treasures, money, property, even things that we anticipate we will pass on to our kids or maybe even our grandkids, things that we hope and, and trust and pray will last. But nonetheless, those things will eventually fade away. They, they don't last. The good news for each of us is, is that we have a treasure that we don't have to look for. We have a treasure that we already possess. And Paul has, has called that 
treasure Christ in you, the hope of glory. And our job, and what Paul's been trying to convince us of over the last several verses is, you and I need to protect that treasure. You and I need to guard that treasure because it's valuable. Far more valuable than the treasure Ben Gates found. It's priceless. And so, let's look at just these two verses and we're going to talk about uh, one way this morning that we can guard that treasure. So, chapter 2 in Colossians beginning in verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 16, we're going to read just a couple of verses. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our minds and our hearts and ultimately our wills. God, I pray that you would uh, allow us to focus and, and keep the distractions of this world away, uh, that we might hear what you have to say to us and that we might be changed. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. He begins 16 with therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, you should look and see what it's there for. Right? We, we go back and because of what he said in the first 15 verses, because of that, he's fixing to make a, an announcement to us. So what's he talked about? Let's go back and review the last two or three weeks. Um, he began back in the first eight verses talking about the importance of community, the importance of being encouraged by close fellowship in order to keep from being deceived. He said in verse 4, don't be deceived. And he talks about community and, and the importance of that in keeping from being deceived. We need one another. It's important that we have one another in our lives. Consistent, loving fellowship is a necessity as a Christian. Now, we gather on Sunday mornings and other times during the week, and we spend time in God's Word, and we spend time in worship, and that's all well and good. But if that's all that you do, then you're just basically checking a box because there are no lone rangers in the Christian life. We need one another. We have to have one another. So that's why we encourage you to come early and stay late, and lots of you do that. And you participate in that kind of fellowship, and that's healthy, and that's good. The second thing we talked about beginning in, in verse 8 is that we have security in Christ. And that is a protection for us is to recognize who Christ is and that we're secure in Him. He talked about that Christ is Lord over all. And since we're going to serve someone in this life, we might as well serve the one who is over everything. Then he told us that we're secure, and we're secure because God has brought us into his family. We talked about, Paul used that term circumcision, which referred back to the Old Testament covenant he made with his people. We read in Galatians 4, just at the beginning of our service this morning, um, that he rescued us from those elemental things. It's the same word Paul uses in that passage from last week through redemption, and because of that, we're now adopted into His family. That family, by the way, that has existed since Abraham and that God made a covenant with, and despite the fact that God's people were rebellious and wicked 
and snub their nose at him for century after century after century, he still pursued them and loved them and ultimately died for them. And now because we're part of that family that God is pursuing, we have security. And so Paul says, therefore, because of the fact that these things are true, therefore, he says, don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink or festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath. And I know what you're thinking. God, just yesterday, someone acted as my judge according to a new moon, right? How many of you know what a new moon is? Just know what that is? Not very many. How many of you had someone judge you based on the new moon? Does that mean this is irrelevant? <laughs> what in the world is Paul talking about? Um, well, we're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, first, I want to briefly describe those terms, but that's not really what we're after here. Paul's giving some culturally relevant examples for them, and, and we're going to spend some time talking about some culturally relevant examples for us uh, as we go through this. Um, so first of all, what in the world is Paul talking about when he talks about um, food and drink and festivals? Um, first of all, food and drink just basically refers to the Old Testament food laws. See, Paul has been dogged and followed as he's gone from church to church to church. These Jewish teachers have come along behind him and said, okay, we appreciate what Paul's done, but you also need to be doing this for you to really be Christian. Paul's presented a gospel to them that is based on grace alone through faith alone, and these teachers have come behind him and said, well, yeah, that's true, but here are some things you also need to do. Now, Paul didn't start this church, and so people didn't necessarily follow him to Colossae, but he's writing them kind of as a preemptive strike. Don't worry, these guys are coming if they're not already there, and here are some things they're going to act as judges in your life about, one of which is these food laws. But we learn from Acts 10 that God explained to Peter that when you're dealing with Gentiles, the food laws don't matter anymore. Not for them, and even, Peter, not for you as a Jew when you're... I'm not going to start over, really. I don't know where we... I don't know where we died, but... We died right there? We are talking about food and drink, right? Okay. And we finished food and drink, right? Just, just say yes, and we'll keep going. Okay. <laughs> um... Or festivals. Uh, that word in the New Testament, every time it's used, every single time it's used, refers to one of the three big festivals that God required His people to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. That should make you just a little bit excited, what I just said. God required His people to go and celebrate. God required His people to take a week off from work and go to Jerusalem and celebrate. To eat and drink and feast and enjoy, Right? People say, well, the God of the Old Testament was mean. and he, he forced the people because they wouldn't do it otherwise. They're workaholics. Take a break. There were three festivals. Uh, one in the spring called Passover. Uh, people went up and celebrated. And then one in, in early summer, actually 50 days after Passover, which we celebrate actually today. Today is what we call Pentecost. 
50 days after Passover is also called uh, the Feast of uh, First Fruits or the Feast of Weeks. Uh, early summer, and they would go up and, and take the first fruits from their harvest. They didn't live in North Carolina where things are just starting to grow, but over there, they've already harvested some things. And then the third one we often call the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Ingathering. That was in the fall. And those three festivals they were required to celebrate. And Paul says, don't let someone act as your judge according to that. You don't have to follow that anymore. We're going to talk about why in a minute. Um, someone can't say, for you to be a Christian, you've got to go up to Jerusalem three times a year. No, to be a Christian, you have to put your trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for forgiveness of sins. A new moon was just another festival. The new moon is when you look up in the sky and you can't find it because it's, it's, it's not yet to its very smallest crescent stage. It's dark. It's the new moon. And for the Jews, it was the beginning of each month. They worked on a lunar calendar. And so there were certain sacrifices and certain things they had to do the beginning of each month. And Paul says, if someone comes along and says, you've got to do this, this, and this once a month, you can tell them, take a hike. I have to do that. It's not necessary. And finally, Sabbath. And we in the church are confused about Sabbath. Maybe one of these days we'll spend a, an hour talking about that. We're not going to today. Uh, but basically, the Sabbath, and we're confused about this too, the Sabbath is Saturday. Today is not the Sabbath. The church teaches that a lot. Today's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. And we gather today, and the early Jews gathered today and offended lots of people by giving up gathering on Saturday to gather on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. Today's not the Sabbath. Today is the resurrection day. Yesterday was the Sabbath. So if you think you ought to keep the Sabbath, then don't ever mow your yard on Saturday. Right? Don't load up a canoe and go to the lake. That's work. Okay? We as believers, we're free from that. There are some good ideas about rest, but ultimately, as believers, we rest in the finished work of Christ. That's where we rest. And so Paul says, don't let someone come along and start giving you these rules about Sabbath. Your rest is in Christ. Okay, so again, no one has ever come up to me and said, you're not a good Christian because you're not keeping the food laws. You're not a good Christian because of what you did on the first of the month. And you're not a good Christian because, right? So what we want to do is we'll look at why Paul said this and then apply that principle to us today. So the question is why, and the issue is shadow versus substance. Look at verse 17. Things which are, these things are a mere shadow of what is to come. What's a shadow? All a shadow is, is it tells us that there's something of substance nearby. There's something, some reality nearby. And this image would have been perfect for Greek-speaking people on that day because they were very familiar with Plato's philosophy. Plato told a story about a cave and that these people are in the cave and all they can see is these shadows. And that's all they've known all their life. And they think that's reality when really there's something else behind them casting the shadow of reality against the wall. And, and then someone finally gets out of the cave and, and goes, oh, whoa, my world just changed. <laughs> it was just black and white. Now it's color and it moves and it's real. And, and he goes back into the cave and he tries to convince the people that, that there's some other reality and they think he's crazy. 
And Paul says, these festivals, they all point to a bigger reality. Color, HD. You were looking at black and white and fuzzy. Christ is the reality. And so we think, okay, what does that look like for us, 21st century? Um, well, it, for us, it looks like people that come along and try to add things to the gospel. There's nothing new under the sun, right? We, we still, and people still, are so concerned with your salvation, so concerned and so untrusting of you or the Holy Spirit, that they want to add things. They don't think you're doing it right, so they say, well, yeah, grace is important, but you've got to come to church. If you don't come to church, you're probably not a good Christian. Maybe not even a Christian at all. In fact, you probably ought to come every week. Do I do anything with this? Just Now, can I do this? Or is it one of those that's got to be... I feel like Pav. I feel like Pav. He's always been told to put it up close. Just wave if I go away. Make sure. Okay, now where were we? Oh, yeah. Ben Gates, no, we're not. What's the last thing that I said? Let me give you some examples. Let me give you, we talked about church, right? Okay. Let me give you another example. The other thing we do is uh, we we impose a rule on ourselves. And then because we've done that to ourselves, we assume we can impose that rule on you. Okay, so legalism is either adding something to the gospel that doesn't need to be added. You're not a Christian unless. Or it's something is true for me or good for me and therefore it also is good for you. Let me give you an example. Um, when we first came here a couple of years ago, um, I gave you the example of uh, when we were in seminary, we were you know, semi-poor, our, our outgo always exceeded our income. And on the way to church, every Sunday, we drove by a billboard advertising for the, the lottery. And that began to bug me, uh, began to make me bitter and jealous and dream about riches. And so for me, what I needed to do at that point in time, because my situation wasn't going to change, um, I needed to go to church a different way. And so we drove a different way to church. I imposed a rule on myself because of where I was in life and said, we're going to do something different. Now, what would have been legalism is if I showed up at church and said, you know, how many of you drive down 635 to go to church? You don't need to go that way. There's a there's an evil billboard. You have to avoid that. Well, they may not have had a problem with that billboard. It may not have produced coveting in their heart. It may not have made them bitter. And so for me to impose that rule on them would be legalism. And that's bad. That's a rule that they didn't need. And so the the question is, are all rules bad? I want to do three things in what little time we have left. Um, I want to talk about um, why we have rules, because we do have rules, uh, and sometimes those rules are, end up as legalism. So why do we have rules? Um, and then I want to talk about when they're good, and then I want to talk about um, judging other people, because we hear that a lot, don't judge, or you shouldn't judge, Christians shouldn't judge. So I want to talk about that. Um, I think that's where we want to go. So we've been talking about rules and why they're bad.
Um, so why are rules good? How many of you have children? How many of you ever given your child a rule? Is that legalism? Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. And how many of you, if your children disobeyed the rule, they were no longer your children? Well, that doesn't happen, does it? There are certain times when rules are good. One of those is when people are immature. When my kids were little, we had a rule in our house. You can't go outside without an adult. Because they were immature. They didn't know necessarily what would cause them harm. Or if they got in trouble, how to get out of it. So we had a rule. And yet now, every day almost, there's not a day that goes by that at least one of my children don't go outside without an adult. What happened? Well, they became mature in their understanding of outside. They grew up. In fact, I purposefully now send my children to the mailbox, and it's like three feet from a road. But I'm not concerned because what's happened is they have internalize the concept of danger. They understand what will hurt them, what will not hurt them. None of my children are going to go out and play in the road. They don't need for me to give them that rule anymore. Right? It's in one sense, if we use the the biblical analogy, it's been written on their heart. Right? I'm not concerned about that because they have matured. But sometimes in our lives, we need rules. Why? Because we're immature. Now, don't sit out there and say, oh, not me. Nobody in this room is completely mature in every category of life. All of us sit on the wrong side of being conformed to the image of Christ. And there are times when you and I need rules in our lives because we're immature about something. What doesn't need to happen is for me to take the rules that I've imposed on me because of my immaturity and assume that your immaturity looks just like mine. Oh, you've got some immaturity, I promise you. But it probably looks different than mine, so for me to impose that rule on you is legalism. Does that make sense? Do you follow that? Legalism, again, is me not trusting the Holy Spirit to work in your life. But there are lots and lots of times when self-imposed rules are important. And really what that does is it gives us time to breathe and relax and spend some time getting our head back on straight and focusing on what's important because ultimately the goal in rules is to get you to a point where you don't need rules anymore. As parents, that should be our goal. We give our kids rules. Ultimately, our goal is to train their heart so that we can remove those rules and all of a sudden they don't go crazy, right? right? My kids don't have the rule of not going outside, but they're not going, oh, oh, we can go play in the road now. No. The goal is changed heart. And so if the rule doesn't have the eventual result of a changed heart, then maybe you need to rethink about why you have that rule. Okay. 
for me and the billboard, right? It allowed me to get through a season of life where circumstances and my own immaturity combined together to produce sin in my life. Covetousness, bitterness. I'm not sure I wouldn't, if we move back to Dallas, which I hope we never do, I don't know that it would bother me to drive by that billboard anymore. There's some things that over the last year and a half that, that God has worked on me and I've allowed Him to work in me. And I'm not sure it'd be a big deal anymore. I don't know that I would need that rule anymore. Finally, um, what do we do with judging people? We hear that all the time, especially in our postmodern culture, in our relativistic culture. Uh, don't judge me. You don't have the right to judge me. The Bible even says don't judge. Well, that's true. It does if we take it in the wrong context. So the question is, uh, if I come along and see you doing something that you're not supposed to be doing as a believer, if I see you cheating on your wife, gossiping about things you shouldn't be gossiping about, not loving your neighbor the way you should be, do I have the right to come into your life and say, stop? Absolutely. The Bible gives me perfect authority, gives all of you perfect authority as a believer to come into someone's life and say, don't do that. Is that judging? Well, of course it is. Is it biblical judging? Of course it is. Now, there are some uh, caveats to that. Uh, Jesus tells a story about uh, people with a speck in their eye trying to remove a, a log from somebody else's, right? For example, uh, if I'm cheating on my taxes, I don't have a platform to stand on to come into your life and say, don't take paper clips from the office. Because they're both stealing... And if I'm stealing, I don't have the right to speak into your life about not stealing, right? So that's one reason why we need to be walking in truth so that when our neighbor, our believing neighbor stumbles, we can lovingly come alongside of him and say, how can I help you? You know, you're really messing up. You know, you're not looking like Jesus would want you to look. Again, it has nothing to do with whether they're a believer or not. We don't add that to the gospel. We don't say, you're not a Christian because you're cheating on your taxes or you're cheating on your wife. You're not acting like Jesus would act. You're not representing our Savior well by your behavior. And that's not judging. That's coming alongside someone in love. And that's our responsibility. That's your responsibility. So if someone throws that up at you, say, read 1 Corinthians 5. We're supposed to come into each other's lives and speak truth in love. Right? When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, um, don't judge lest you be judged, that's right. If, if I'm going to come alongside you and say, you're not acting like Jesus, I really need to make sure I understand that that's what's happening. The Holy Spirit's doing that in my life. That if I'm going to expect a standard of you, I need to expect a standard of myself. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying don't do it. He's saying if you do judge, make sure you understand that, that same measure is applied to you. So, in other words, are you walking in truth so you can come alongside someone that they can walk in truth?
Now, what about non-believers? Because we hear that all the time as well. Don't judge. The church has two problems, has had two problems for a long, long time. Number one, we've told people that if they don't change their sin, they're going to hell. Number two, we've told people, if you don't change your sin, or you have to change your sin, you have to stop what you're doing to become a Christian. And both of those are not true. People are not going to hell because uh, they won't quit a sin. They're going to hell because they don't know Jesus. Number two, people can't clean up their life before they come to Christ. It's not possible. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in them. They've not been regenerated. So for us as a church to stand up and say, change your behavior, you're bad, you need to, it's not going to happen. Of course they're bad. They don't have, they're just like you and I were before we came to Christ. It's not possible for them to clean up their act unless the Holy Spirit regenerates them. Our job as the church, as we relate to non-believers, is to so show the magnificence and the glory and the incomparable riches of Christ to the world that they look at their own life and go, I'm a mess compared to that, and I want that. When Isaiah was in the temple and God appeared to him, he didn't say, Isaiah, clean up your act so I can use you. Isaiah saw the incomparable beauty and majesty and glory and awesomeness of God and said, woe is me. Our job is the church is to look so like Jesus that the world is jealous and they realize that what they're doing is chasing a lie. It's not to point a finger and say your behavior is bad. Of course it's bad. There's nothing else it could be without Christ. Our job is to come alongside people and reveal Christ in all of His glory by sometimes imposing rules on ourselves because we're immature. And that people see us looking like Jesus and they fall down on their face before Him and say, Woe is me. God, I need You. That's our job as believers. But we do a great job of pointing our finger at the world and saying, you're evil, you're bad. Yeah, they are. But that's not going to change anybody. Rules don't change the heart. Rules allow us as believers to get to a place where we can, instead of focusing on that sin that's killing us, to focus on the majesty of Christ and be changed then that rule can go away. And so Paul's goal here and in the rest of the chapter is to help us protect our treasure, which is freedom. It's Christ in us. And so to do that, one of the things we have to do is get rid of legalism. We can't let someone come and impose things on us. But the application is also we can't turn around and impose what God is teaching us on someone else. And so as we, as we go our way this morning, may we protect the treasure that's ours. Christ is in you. And that should give you great hope. Now, for all you kids out there, 
your parents have the right to impose rules on you. Don't go home and say, I'm really mature, mom and dad. You may be. You may be growing towards that. Uh, nonetheless, they stand responsible to God for you up to a certain point. So uh, love them and allow them to impose rules on you. And then as your behavior changes, those rules will go away over time. You just have to be patient. Sorry, it's the way life is. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your love for us. God, thank you that you have given us your word that is full of rules and regulations so that we might see your glory and who you are and your majesty. God, help us to look at them in that way as a, a testimony of your character and your goodness and your grace. And then, God, help us to, um, to think very carefully before we come alongside someone and, and, and seek to impose rules on them. Help us to think, are we, are we trusting you in their life, or do we think that they really need our wisdom? So I pray that you'd give us wisdom in that, and I pray that you would um, you'd bless the rest of our day and allow us to be a blessing to those we come in contact with. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.